Welcome to MI's FedSpeak podcast. I'm Pedro da Costa, and I'm pleased to be joined by Jim Bullard, former president of the Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis and now dean of Purdue University's Mitchell E. Daniels Jr. School of Business. Dr. Bullard led the St. Louis Fed from April 2008 to July of this year and is widely respected as a leading thinker and scholar on monetary policy who is never shy about openly debating his views. He was early to warn that the Fed was falling behind the curve on inflation in late 2021 and dissented in favor of a more aggressive start to tightening in March of 2022. It's a pleasure to welcome you on the FedSpeak podcast, Jim. Glad to be here. Let's start with the most recent policy decision, of course. Last week, the Fed not only held rates steady, but delivered what was seen as a pretty dovish configuration of, you know, between the SEP and the chairman's press conference. The market certainly took it as a green light to rally across asset classes. What did you make of the decision? And do you think the market is right to be pricing in as many rate cuts as it is? Well, I would say in the big picture, the soft landing story has continued to gain in prominence and more and more probability is being attached to that for 2024. So to me, this would mean that the economy would grow at a trend pace of growth, something like 2% rate of growth in real GDP for 2024, and that inflation would continue to come down and get close to target during 2024. And if all of that happens, that would be a very good outcome indeed for the U.S. economy, unemployment remaining below or at 2-4%. So that's a very good outcome, and markets are sensing that and betting on that. And that's not all wrong, I think. Sometimes markets get carried away in various dimensions, but the general story, I think, is a very positive one for the U.S. economy. But why would the Fed need to cut rates if the economy is doing well? Because inflation would be falling, and uh, so the the policy of front-loading the rate hikes in 2022 would be vindicated as inflation went back down close to 2% without causing a recession. That was actually the goal of the whole exercise, and, and it seems to be working. So if that happens, then you wouldn't need the policy rate to be nearly as high with inflation coming down closer to 2%. Is that something that's hard to communicate, especially to the, maybe the non-market public, that you're actually cutting rates in order to keep rates the same? Is that a difficult messaging exercise, potentially? Potentially. A lot of people have in mind that the only reason you cut rates is because the economy is not doing well, and that's not what's happening here. So there is a sort of pessimistic uh, message that can be contained in that, that the reason you're cutting rates is must be because something's bad or something's going wrong in the economy, but that wouldn't be the case here. Uh, things would be going right. Uh, you would be getting rid of the big inflation that we had over the last couple of years and getting rid of it in a timely manner and without a big recession. And that would be, you know, very good news indeed. So yeah, it's a that's a new configuration. Um, the closest thing we've had to that historically has been the mid-1990s where then Chairman Alan Greenspan and the committee raised the policy rate 300 basis points in a short period of time during 1994. And that set up the economy for very good performance in the second half of the 1990s with inflation near 2% 
and real growth very strong uh, and unemployment declining through that period. So hopefully we'll get a, a good outcome like that as a result of this forthright and aggressive action on it uh, to get inflation under control during 2022 and 2023. So the Fed was signaling with its SEP three rate cuts this year, markets went as, you know, as far as pricing in as six potentially. How many would you envision under this soft landing scenario where they're cutting the nominal rate in order to keep real rates constant? Yeah, I think the three projected by the committee is about right for a soft landing uh, scenario. I think what's happening is that some parts of the market are still predicting recession in 2024. So if you think inflation's coming down and there's going to be a recession both, that would cause the Fed to take more action. But the recession bets are retreating, I would say, in financial market pricing because it just doesn't look like an economy where a recession is around the corner. We had 5% plus real growth at an annual rate in the third quarter. Now GDP now for the Atlanta Fed's GDP now for the fourth quarter is 2.6%. So those are both well above the trend pace of growth for the U.S. economy. Unemployment went back down to 3.7%. These aren't the kind of numbers that are associated with recession. So it it seems like the economy re-accelerated in the second half of 2023, but the disinflationary process continued to pace. So uh, these are all a good confluence of events. What about the timing of of the first rate cuts, say, because people are talking about as early as the, the first quarter now, potentially March, because of the pace at which inflation has been falling. You think that's a plausible timeline? And as a former policymaker now, maybe you can talk about this as, you know, slightly more candidly, does the election calendar affect you know, your desire to potentially move a little sooner rather than later so that you don't get into election season? Yeah, I don't think that the politics really, really affects any decision making. I never noticed it around the table. And I think, I just think the idea that you can zig or zag with monetary policy in just the right way to influence the election, I think that's a pipe dream. Probably the biggest issue for the election is inflation. So, and it's probably the inflation that has already occurred uh, during the last couple of years. So it's not very clear that you could change any voter's mind on that, that has, has, um, based on what you would do in March or May or, or something like that. So I've never seen a politician win an election based on the fact that the Fed moved in June or something. I just don't think the marginal voter uh, can, considers anything like that. On the idea of March as a possible timing for a rate cut, I, on that, I think that's probably premature. I think the Various members have said that, um, and I, I just don't think there'll be enough information in hand at yeah. that point to, to really make that kind of a decision, because once you move, you're going to be very reluctant to go back in the other direction, and so you'd probably want inflation to come down uh, precipitously, even from where it is today, certainly with a two-handle on inflation, maybe even 2.5% is you know, maybe where you'd like to be where you'd start this process. The biggest problem for the committee is if if you start cutting rates and then inflation goes back up, because that will bring up the specter of the 1970s when the uh, committee pulled back too early and uh, inflation turned around and went up and then it took another 
eight years or something to get rid of, rid of inflation. So you don't want to get in that scenario. And as long as the economy is performing pretty well, you don't really have any pressure from that side either. So you might as well just wait for good news to continue to come in on inflation. Make sure you have a burden hand before you start to cut the policy rate. So that would uh, argue for something later in the year. But this is all very data dependent. So you know everything depends on how the first quarter shapes up. That segues nicely into the next question, which is what's your level of confidence in this disinflation story and the chance that it will persist? Or how much credence do you give to the notion that, you know, the last percentage point is sort of harder than the preceding several? Yeah, I don't really think there's any evidence that the last part is harder. I would say that what happens is as you get closer to having inflation at target, that the amount of pressure applied by the monetary policymaker is less and therefore, the, the inflation rate asymptotes toward the 2% target instead of overshooting it or undershooting it. So I think that's what would happen here is that inflation would gradually come down, but the policy rate would also come down and you wouldn't be quite as hawkish as previously as you get closer to target. And so you would asymptote toward 2% if, if everything goes well and there aren't other shocks that hit the economy. So how much confidence do I have? I think I still think there's a 30% chance that inflation will flatten out or or start to rise instead of continue to fall. And, you know, that leaves a 70% chance that it'll continue to decline, which is great. But that 30% is not being priced into markets. And that I don't think markets are being careful enough because if that happens, if inflation would go, let's say, go back up above 4%, or something like that, that would cause a whole new round of Fed tightening and reassessment of whole policy, all kinds of things. And that would certainly mess up many people's uh, bets and portfolios at this point. So, so I think there should be some measure of caution here about policy not turning the corner too fast here until we have more data in hand that inflation really is, I think Jay said, uh, well and truly uh, under control. To that point, is there a risk that the loosening of financial conditions that followed a perceived dovish Fed decision, that that itself might undermine the achievement of 2% inflation in a timely manner? Yeah, I, I, there certainly is feedback. And that's why the uh, the communications are always bouncing back and forth like a ping pong ball. The um, uh, But if you have a relatively strong economy and you have um, markets really anticipating a strong economy, then, uh, you know, everything on the margin that might cause inflation to not fall as fast or to stall the disinflation to stall altogether. And uh, so there is some feedback between perceptions of future policy and uh, what actually happens today. So that's the mystery of monetary policy, which uh, keeps us on our toes all the time. And looking a little further ahead, how low do you expect rates to go in this cycle? Is there a chance that we return to a zero lower bound type of concern, or do you expect them to, you know, to end the cycle well above that level? Well, there's always a chance, but that the base case would be that we've moved away from the regime that existed between 2009 and 2019 
and instead we'll be at in a regime that was more like what we had in the late 1990s or the early 2000s with inflation above target. And even today, despite the disinflation, still well above target, we still have inflation numbers that would have been considered off the charts not that long ago. So there's still plenty of inflation there. And I think this will, it will dissipate over the coming year, but only at a moderate pace. And so as long as you have inflation above target, then the policy rate will have to be above the inflation rate and uh, it will only come down, you know, relatively slowly. So this this whole whole scenario points toward the idea that you're dealing with nominal interest rates that are quite a bit higher than what you would have had in the 2009 to 2019 period when inflation was below target, you had exceptionally low nominal rates, negative nominal interest rates in many countries around the world. And, uh, you know, I, I don't think we're going back to that. Of course, you can go back to that if you had a big shock or something. Um, but I don't think that's the regime we're in right now. Would you say that fiscal policy has played a major role in the surge of inflation that we had post-COVID and potentially is still playing one and that and would you would you say that the Fed potentially ignores that a little bit too much? Because sometimes there's it seems like in wanting to avoid discussing fiscal issues generally, there's a lack of a discussion of fiscal effects on the macro picture. Yeah, I think the sort of normal fiscal back and forth that goes on in Washington is usually relatively small potatoes. And so when you do a macroeconomic analysis of it, it doesn't turn out to be, you know, that consequential. However, I do think fiscal policy played an enormous role in this inflation. And the story I've been telling is that you should think of the global pandemic as like a war. I don't mean like the wars in Ukraine or, or the Hamas war, but just think of it as a, as a war, sort of generically speaking. One thing we know about wars across many different times and places with different policy institutions, totally different personalities involved, the wars often end up being associated with inflation. So I think the simple story about what happens is that the, the war causes some, some kind of social upheaval. And certainly the pandemic did that. And then the government comes in and tries to help. And their idea of helping is to borrow a lot of money uh, without asking too many questions about how they're going to pay for it uh, because they're in the middle of a crisis. And then uh, the monetary uh, side uh, is expected to help with the war effort by keeping interest rates very low. So the combination of, of very large government deficit spending and the monetary policymaker expected to also keep interest rates low. That almost always leads to inflation in many different times and places. And that's what I think happened uh, during the pandemic. The, the fiscal response was intentionally large uh, because the spirit of the times was to do more than, err on the side of doing more than necessary. And certainly the as central bankers, we certainly fell in line and did exactly uh, what was expected and kept interest rates exceptionally low and had balance sheet program as well. So, yeah, so this uh, time we got to the middle of 2020, it was apparent that this is going to generate some inflation and uh, it turned out to be quite a bit of inflation. 
So I do think fiscal fiscal monetary interaction is the story here. And that's why also I think it's hard to hearken back to previous business cycles uh, during the post-war era because we didn't really have this level of government deficit spending. We had deficit spending in various situations, but not at this level. And this amount of intensity, I would say, and not necessarily in combination with uh, extremely low interest rates. So it's that combination that pretty reliably leads to a lot of inflation. That's what we got here. And then to get out of that, you say, well, gosh, you've caused a lot of inflation. Well, how are you going to fix that? But you, what you have to do is go back to the pre-war regime, which would be here would be the pre-pandemic regime in which fiscal policy gets more orthodox and monetary policy also becomes more orthodox. And that did happen maybe by more by luck than uh, design, but we got a divided government. The divided government's probably not going to spend the, the way that the unified government spent. And then uh, the central bank uh, returns to its roots and starts fighting the inflation. So we raised interest rates quite a bit. And this is enough to switch back to the pre-crisis regime and get inflation back to target. So that seems to be happening. Uh, so that's my story about uh, fiscal policy and and the current crisis. It's a good one. Sticking to the theme of lessons learned from this episode, the Fed is about to embark in a framework review starting this new year, you know, for delivery in 2025. Are there any particular lessons or ideas that you'd want to introduce to that framework review and any changes you think need to be made to the Fed's flexible average inflation targeting regime? Yeah, I think that the framework should be reviewed on a regular schedule. So I think that's good. I think that the previous changes that were made were designed to address the very low interest rate environment. And there was an implicit assumption that if, if inflation turns out to be high, uh, we all know what to do about that. We all know that we're going to have to raise interest rates aggressively if inflation is high. So the framework review in 2019 and 2020 was designed to talk about, yes, but what do you do when inflation is exceptionally low and interest rates are pinned down at the effective lower bound? And so there's statements in there and allusions in there to, okay, here's how policy would be conducted in that environment. And certainly ideas about forward guidance, about allusions maybe to price level targeting and other things are sort of informing the the current statement. But the the implicit idea was, well, if inflation's high, then see Boker 1980. Uh, <laughs> and, and and actually when inflation did come along uh in in 2021, that is how the, the committee reacted. We raised rates uh, very aggressively, one of the most aggressive that we've seen certainly since the Volcker era. So I think now with the revamp of the policy framework, you have to, I guess, do more to get that part in line in uh, the, so that that part comes out in the, in the statement of long run goals. So basically you would have a paragraph that would say, if inflation's high, we're going to raise rates aggressively in order to return inflation to target. If inflation is very low, we may take on some of these unorthodox policies 
that were developed between 2009 and 2019. So if we can get the spirit of that together, I think that would describe the framework that the policymakers are working under today. That's great. Thank you so much for your time, Jim. That was Jim Bullard. He's the former president of the St. Louis Fed and dean of Purdue University's Daniel School of Business. Really appreciate your time. Thanks for having me. This is fun.